All right. Good morning, City Light. How are we doing? Good morning. Good morning. Uh, welcome. My name is Nate, one of the pastors here. If you're new, just want to say hey. Uh, please come up, say hi, get connected, fill out a connect card on your way out. Uh, we would love to walk with you on your spiritual journey wherever you may be. Uh, to those of you who know me well enough, um, you don't need to come up to me and say, wow, you look nice today, all right? Um, as if I don't always look nice, all right? It's a, it's a backhanded compliment that you guys are giving me, but uh, I always tell people there are two reasons why you're going to see me looking like this, and always, the only two reasons on planet Earth you would ever see me dressed like this, funerals and weddings, okay? So uh, today, I have the privilege of going to do a wedding of two of our very own, Cole and Lindsay, and so we're really excited for them. Uh, today, and so I'm going to preach and then get in the car, and uh, I decided to go ahead and wear my suit to save time. So uh, here we go. Maybe you'll listen to me more, respect me more if I look like this. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. I'll wear a t-shirt next week to bring things back to normal, all right? We'll balance it out. Uh, but this morning, we're going to be in our second, our second part of our Who is Jesus series, but the first connection to the booklet. So uh, last week I explained, we're walking through the book of Mark, trying to answer the question, who is Jesus? There's two resources that you should have that we're making available to you. One is a scripture journal so that you can mark it up, take notes in the sermon, read the Bible throughout the week. Uh, as we always say, man cannot live on sermons alone. And so go explore the Bible for yourself. We have that resource available to you. If you need one, you can get one in the lobby, or you can raise your hand, and Grace will hand you one right now. So if you don't have a scripture journal, raise your hand. Uh, and then we also, along with that, have these Red Christianity Explored books, and they're wonderful resources for whoever you are. So if you're here today, and you're like, I'm exploring Christianity, or I'm just interested in more of what this is, or I'm confused about whatever it is my friends or family believe, uh, it's a great resource for you to help you explore more about who Jesus is. It's also a great resource for those of you who have friends and family members who you would like to engage in a spiritual conversation, or to help them think through who Jesus is. Maybe they don't really want to come to church. Maybe they're intimidated by an environment like this, but they will hang out with you. And so we have this booklet, and the goal for these next eight weeks is to match every sermon with the session in the booklet. So session one covers chapters one through three, and so this sermon is going to cover, as best I can, chapters one through three. Uh, and we're going to work through it that way to provide a resource and a tool for those of you who want to explore Jesus for yourself, that you would have a message and a book and for those of you who want to have a resource to invite friends and family to explore Jesus, you would have the booklet and a message. We ran out of booklets last week. We have about 25 more read Christianity Explored ones today. And so if you know of a friend or family or if you're sure you're going to engage someone with this content, please take one. Feel free to do that. Do that. And we'll have more next week. Uh, as I said last week, the goal for those of you who are here who call yourself uh, City Light members who are followers of Jesus Christ currently, uh, that I'm challenging you over the next eight weeks, a very simple baseline of one spiritual conversation and one intentional invitation to see if those small seeds could lead towards life transformation. And what we often forget is that it's God who really does the work. And maybe it is just one conversation the Lord is asking you to start or one invitation that he's asking you to make to come explore who Jesus is, to come be a part of what God's doing at church. But can you make one invitation, and can you intentionally start one spiritual conversation about Jesus with somebody that you know that doesn't know him? If you're here today, I'm asking you not just to give me today, but the next eight weeks so that you can get a full picture of who Jesus is. 
I'm so glad that you are here, and I'm so glad that you have chosen to be here this morning, even though you might still be confused or aren't quite still sure about this Christianity and Jesus thing. I hope you feel welcome and loved. We are so glad that you are here. And I ask that you not just give me today, but that you give me the next eight weeks so that you can get a full picture of who Jesus is and then make your decision. We all know, at the very least, he did split time in half. And so he's probably worth eight weeks of your time in devotion so that you can make sure you have the real, clear picture of who Jesus is. Because I have found that even those of us who are Christians, and especially those who are not, have usually a very misguided, untrue conception of who Jesus is. And a lot of us make decisions about Jesus based off what I call fairy tale Jesus. I have a friend, his name is Omar. Uh, he runs a food truck, and we have had conversations for years now. And uh, the, the first, first time I met him, we began to talk about Jesus, and he explained to me that he believed Jesus was like a good guy, nice teacher, even possibly a prophet. Um, uh, and he grew up Muslim, which is generally how most Muslims view Jesus. And I began to explain to him something I think is important for all of you, and this is what I spend a lot of my time doing, is the Jesus that you believe in is a myth. That's fairy tale Jesus. That Jesus that you're talking about does not exist, not in that form. And you're making decisions about your whole entire life based off fairy tale Jesus, based off a Jesus that isn't even how he presented himself. If we're going to say, what is a man like, you should take the man's words for himself. That's probably your best source to say, well, who is this Jesus? Well, what did he say about himself? And I'm going to help, hopefully help you see that him being a nice guy, a good teacher, and a prophet is simply not an option that he left with us. To believe in Jesus as such is a fairy tale, and it begins with once upon a time. But there is a real Jesus, and he has really revealed himself. I want to give you the three examples that I think most people view Jesus as. Here's number one. The picture on the screen, I call this Gandhi Jesus, okay? It's nice teacher Jesus, meditating Jesus, nice guy, good advice Jesus. You come to Gandhi Jesus and you get really good advice. Hum, and everything feels right with the world. This is Gandhi Jesus, okay? That's how many of you maybe grew up and maybe some of you view him now. You think of Gandhi and Jesus in the same category. Nice guys, good teachers, good advice. Here's this next one is what I call nice teacher Jesus. This is, he's primarily a teacher. He's got something to say. Um, he teaches even maybe the scriptures. He teaches about God. Uh, this would be what many would call the prophet. Jesus the prophet who comes and he represents God and he teaches about God. He has so many good things to teach and to say. And so we accept Jesus as a nice teacher, no problem. And this is how many of you maybe view him today. Then here's my final and favorite one, the GQ Jesus. This is the GQ Jesus. This is the handsome. You know, the Bible says that Jesus wasn't much to look at. That's what the Bible says about Jesus. Uh, but oftentimes we create GQ Jesus, uh, really good looking. Now, he was a, a carpenter, so he probably was pretty fit. Okay, he probably had some muscles. Uh, but we have GQ Jesus, very attractive, uh, just very much like, oh, you know, charismatic. I want to be with GQ Jesus. These are some of the things we have. Many also people have what's called homeboy Jesus, like he's my best friend, we pound it, you know, like we're cool, everything's good with me, and homeboy Jesus, he is my homeboy. And as you look throughout Google, and even as you talk to your friends, and even as you yourself might be thinking, 
Uh, it's clear that the way we speak about Jesus and the image we have about Jesus, generally speaking in the world, is very, very far off. And if he's just Gandhi, just a nice teacher, if he's just GQ Jesus, then of course he's pretty irrelevant. There's no reason to worship him or to spend any time really talking about him. Therefore, because we view Jesus this way, we cost him to the side. We say, ah, no big deal. Just a nice guy. That way I can dismiss him. But here's what I want you to understand. Is to deal with the real Jesus as presented in the Bible is to have no option other than to love him or to hate him. Being neutral about him is simply not an option. Accepting him as a good teacher, a nice guy, a prophet, is simply not an option. Let me read from you. Uh, this guy, C.S. Lewis, he writes about this. He calls it the liar, lunatic, lord defense. And he's explaining that these are the only appropriate categories for Jesus. And you must take him as one of these three things. Here's what he says. I am trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he is a madman or even something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him, his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. And this is very, very, very important. Because this is the prevalent way that our world views and accepts Jesus. And this might be the Jesus that you have currently been accepting, but it's not the real Jesus. So my aim today is the same aim as Lewis, to prevent you from thinking untrue things about Jesus, to help you see what he really did say. We're going to see throughout the Gospel of Mark that Jesus, as C.S. Lewis said, said some really wild things, and that if he's just a man, he's a crazy man. That doesn't, a nice teacher is simply not an option, even just logically, without any spiritual evidence involved. Him being just a nice guy who gave good advice is not an option. If he walked around and said the things that he said today, you would call him crazy. And so let's deal with the real Jesus. We're gonna open up the book of Mark. We're gonna move pretty quickly through these three chapters, but I want you uh, to really recognize who Jesus is, open your eyes and hearts to really understand and deal with him. Uh, you have to understand this, the book of Mark, 16 chapters, I call it the Jason Bourne gospel, okay? It's very exciting, fast-paced, it's just action, 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 okay? It's just boom, 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 everything's boom, there's a chase scene, okay, it's always something happening, all right? So the gospel of Mark is my, my favorite one to work through, especially with people who might be new to the faith, uh, action-packed, action-packed. And so here's what I want you to see from the very beginning, and then we're going to see three different pictures of Jesus. The first thing you ought to notice is that in his day and time, he was a very big deal. Look at some of these verses just from the beginning, chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 1, verse 28. And at once his fame had spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. 
his ministry had literally just started. Chapter 1, verse 33, and the whole city was gathered at the door. So within just a few little, little bit of time, a few weeks of his ministry, the whole city was gathered at his door. Chapter 1, verse 37, they found him and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. That seems pretty important. I feel like you're probably pretty important if everyone is looking for you. Chapter 1, verse 45, Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but he was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. And so now he's got regional influence. Chapter 2, verse 2, and many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. This is a common occurrence now with Jesus being in houses as it's just slam full. Chapter 2, verse 13, and all the crowd was coming to him. I share these first references just so you understand from the beginning and you get the feeling that Jesus was and is a really big deal. A really big deal. And he was so from the very beginning. His ministry was so dramatic that these things couldn't help but happen. He would have to tell people to please not go talk about him so much because it was getting out of hand. So Jesus is a really big deal. He's not something you can sideline and say, okay, cool, whatever. As we talked about last week, our response to Jesus is like, okay, ho-hum, sure, cool. And that's simply not an option. Jesus was a very big deal. And so we have to answer this question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? So I'm going to give you three titles that we see from Jesus today, just in these first three chapters. Jesus as teacher, Jesus as healer, and Jesus as savior. Jesus as teacher, Jesus as healer, and Jesus as savior. So let's look at Mark 1. I'm going to put it on the screen, verses 14 and 15. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, Here's his, what, what did Jesus teach? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now I don't know if you've noticed, but repentance isn't something nice teachers ask for. Does not. Does not. Turning from your way, calling yourself a sinner, and turning towards God and saying no to everything else is not simply a nice teaching or a nice thing to say. What we have to understand from the very beginning is to meet the real Jesus is to immediately be confronted by him. Jesus does not leave it as an option that you would add him to your life. Jesus does not add himself to the repertoire of different gods you can believe in. Jesus does not say, well, add me to the list. Jesus says, when you meet me, you must leave everything else to follow me. And that does not sound like Gandhi or a nice guy. Jesus comes, and the very first message he preaches is one of repentance. That you cannot simply just be cool with Jesus and live your own life. Jesus is not like an addition to the house you already live in. To say, oh, my house is good, I like my life, but I would like to add Jesus as well, he's a good God. He doesn't leave you room from that. He says you must leave your house completely and come live and stay with him. So as you consider who Jesus is, and as many of you who already know him consider once again whether you're really following the real Jesus, I want you to realize this from the outside. To know Jesus is to be constantly confronted by Jesus. The teaching of Jesus requires repentance. Repentance means to turn around, to change your direction, to recognize my way is a bad way. 
and I have sin, and that leads towards destruction. Jesus says you cannot simply keep doing your own thing and add me to it. He says you must stop, recognize your path is destructive, turn around, and follow him alone. And like C.S. Lewis said, only a crazy man or God would demand such a thing. So Jesus teaches repentance, a requirement of repentance. Let's see his teaching more. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 21 through 28. And they came into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue, and he was teaching. And get this. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes, who were the teachers of the Old Testament scriptures, who would have the most authority, When he comes, it's something different. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cries out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And something you ought to recognize about Jesus' teaching is the teaching of the real Jesus was more about authority than advice. You have to deal with him as such. Jesus does not come into the world to give you good advice. He's not concerned about that at all. None of his teaching should be put in the category of good advice, even though it is good advice, but it comes with authority. It's not like, here's an option, why don't you take it and try it? No, it's this is the way I speak with authority. You must listen and obey. And when people begin to hear him talk, they automatically recognize the weight of his words. You guys even know, even a little bit, people like this. When you talk to them, there's something weighty about the words that they say. Well, Jesus shows up, and this is times 100. And then not only does he teach with authority, and does he demand certain things. Jesus is not about advice. He's about authority. Not only does he do this, but then he backs it up. What made me think of this was, whoever y'all, maybe play ball or whatever, there's there's guys who talk a lot of junk or they talk a big game, but when they step on the court and drop 50 on your face, you're like, okay, you you can back it up. You talk whatever you want to say. You are the best one, yeah. You know, you drop 50 right on me. You know, like, what am I going to do? Yeah, keep talking, man, you know. And this is Jesus. He talks a big game, listen to me, and then he takes demons out of people. People are like, Okay, like you talk a big game, but never seen anyone do that before. So uh, you can keep doing that. You need to think about Jesus this way, that not only did he have authority in his words, but his authority was backed up by his works. And he proved himself time and time again. Here's something you must understand about Jesus. And as we're reading these first three chapters, one of the primary descriptive words to describe Jesus is authority. Authority. When you're looking through Mark 1, 2, and 3, you're going to see the word authority, and you're going to see Jesus exercising his authority, and you're going to see people recognizing his authority. That Jesus comes, and he is one with authority. His authority clashes with the powers of the supernatural realm. He shows up and says, I have authority over demons. His authority clashes with the religious realm. He shows up and says, I teach with more authority than you, scribe. He shows up, and his authority clashes with secular powers and governments. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. I have authority over you. When Jesus comes... 
people are confronted by his authority. This is why it's such a big deal that he's not a nice teacher or giving good advice, but he is exercising authority, and this is what bothers people. His authority did not come from someone else. His authority did not come from experience or resume. His authority was not from a recommendation or a position that he earned. His authority did not come from the scribes or the government. It wasn't given by any human. His authority was inherent to himself. And this drove them nuts. And this is what drives you nuts as well. And this is for some of you, the very issue you have with Jesus is that when he shows up, you are confronted with his authority and you would like to bring him into your life as a nice addition, but he doesn't let you do that. And he confronts you and demands that you listen up and follow him. Jesus comes with authority. And to those of you who call yourself Christ followers, are you dealing with Jesus as one with authority? Jesus never, never gives you good advice. Take it or leave it. Never, never, never. Jesus is always speaking and acting with complete authority. And to not obey every single word is to live in sin against him. It is not a preference about what you like about what Jesus said. It is either a submission to his inherent authority or not. And this is what drives them crazy. This is what makes you and me, Christ followers, so disobedient sometimes. And this is what makes some of you who are still hesitant about Jesus so frustrated because he does confront you. Listen, to deal with the real Jesus is to be confronted with his absolute authority, even the authority he has over your own life. His authority that he has over what is right and wrong. His authority that he has over morality in general. His authority that he has over your life, your work, your choices. The authority he has over every institution on planet earth. The authority he has over every angel and demon. This authority, once again, was not given by any human being or any system in the world. It is inherent to who he is. We're like one chapter in, and him being a nice teacher just got kicked out the window. You see that, right? I just, stuff drives me nuts because I'm like, people who say that have never read the Bible. It's literally not an option. It's just not there. Logically, it's just not an option. Not even spiritually. Just read. This is how we know about Jesus. Everybody knows that, right? And so you read this, you say, not an option. Jesus walks around and he speaks with authority. And so are you living Christian as one under authority? Your life is not about your preferences or the things you like about Jesus. And you certainly don't get to say, I like when Jesus says this, but I don't like when Jesus says that. And so I will live my life according to the phrases of Jesus that I like, and I will ignore the things he said that I don't. That's not an option. And if you live that way, you've probably never surrendered to him in the first place. We have to see this, and I've been confronted by this so much, the authority of Jesus. And so often we treat him like he's just a little bit better and greater than us. And that he's a really nice counselor who gives us good advice, and I should take it because it's going to be best for me. No, he's God, and he makes demands. And he commands that you live a certain way. He commands that you bow to him. Jesus walks and talks with one authority. So are you living as one under authority today? What I want to tell some of you who are hesitant to submit to Jesus' authority is this. No matter how hard you squirm to get out from under his rule, 
what you realize even in your own life is that you will only become more stuck under the weight of his power, but you will never experience the benefits of being one of his children. If you do not submit to the authority of Jesus, you cannot run away from the authority of Jesus, you cannot get away from the authority of Jesus because he rules over the world. You certainly cannot run away from the judgment of Jesus. So in your efforts to get free from authority over you, it's like when a kid keeps wrestling, you hold them stronger. You know, it's like your efforts to get free just make you tighter. And those who submit and say yes to Jesus and live under his authority are the ones who begin to experience freedom. It's the very notion of submission that allows you to live in freedom. But the world keeps telling you, be free, be true to yourself, live your truth. And what they're telling you is, be a slave and let your world get tighter and tighter and tighter and suffocate under the power of God. But there's another way to say, I submit and I believe and I trust in Jesus. I submit to his authority. And now I become his child and I begin to live in freedom under the care of a good father. You think you are exercising your freedom by not submitting to Jesus' authority, but you are only becoming less free the more you try to squirm away. It's not an option whether you like to submit to Jesus' authority or not. You will. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm asking you to do that now instead of later. I love this. The demon says, have you come uh, to destroy us? And what we're going to see all throughout Mark is, yes, I have. Yes, yes, I've come to destroy you and death and sin and everything that keeps people away from God. So this is Jesus' mission. Okay, Jesus the teacher, one who teaches with authority. He does not give good advice. He makes commands. Jesus the healer. This is Jesus the healer. Now you you read. So he delivers the man from a demon. He walks over um, to Simon's mother-in-law's house. He just shows up and picks her up, and she's healed. He doesn't even seem to say anything. He just walks in, picks her up. She's healed so well that she begins to serve them. And then he goes out, and the whole city begins to meet with him. And it says that he healed many that were there. And so imagine, imagine this. This is very realistic, that the ailments of an entire city got healed in one night. Imagine an entire city. The lame, the blind, the deaf, the bleeding, They all show up at one door, and they walk away healed. An entire city is restored by the presence of Jesus. This is remarkable, remarkable. So Jesus is healing at massive rates. I love this. In verse 37, they say, everyone is looking for you. Now, here's a little side note. This is more about you now than Jesus. Uh, He says, everyone is looking for you. And then he says, let's go somewhere else, basically, for that's why I came out. Now here's something I racked my brain all week. Everyone's looking for you is everything a ministry is designed to do. To say, everyone come and be ministered to by me. Right? Everyone's looking for you. It seems to be the goal. But now he's saying, okay, everyone's looking for me. I'm out. I'm going to go to another town. My work is done here. I'm not here to build crowds or to build momentum for my ministry. I'm here on assignment from my father. Now, here's something important for you and for me. The more clarity you have on your assignment, the less you will be distracted by the excitement. 
You see, you keep changing your mind and you keep moving towards where the action is because you're not clear on the assignment, the assignment God has for your life, the assignment he's given you to preach the gospel where you are, the assignment and the skills that he's given you. And because you don't have clarity on assignment, you think excitement means God's will. You think where the action is is where God is moving. But Jesus is so clear on his assignment, he has enough discernment to look at that and say, wow, there's a lot of opportunity there. There's a lot of momentum there. Everyone is looking for me. But that's not my assignment. And so I will not get distracted by the excitement. But so many of you are living your life excitement to excitement instead of assignment to assignment. And you're waiting for the day when someone says, everyone is looking for you. Are you living your life by assignment? Are you living your life by excitement? So here's the story of Jesus healing. This is so much. I mean, I was like, I was like, I need to preach one story. And I was like, I can't do that. I have to find a way to do several stories. So we're going to figure this out. Uh, Verse 40, this one has wrecked me all week. A leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling to him. He said, if you will, you can make me clean. Now imagine, imagine, a leper is a complete outcast from society. Not only did they have a skin disease that was torment every day, but because of how contagious it was, they had to stay away from everyone else. Everywhere they walked, they had to be several, 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 several feet away from everyone, and they had to cry out, unclean, unclean, unclean. And so a leper like this man had probably not even been touched in years. It's not just the physical torment, it's the isolation. It's the shame. It's the being ostracized and marginalized. And so imagine this man being a leper, experiencing that kind of devastation. And he comes up to Jesus, and he gets on his knees. He is obviously too close. He has already broken the rules. And he gets on his knees, and he says, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus, verse 41, moved with pity, stretched out his hand, and touched him. And he said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. What I've been totally convinced about this week is just one touch from Jesus. Look at this. The man hadn't been touched in years. Desperate. He walks up to him, gets on his knees, and he says, if you will, if you will, if you will. You will. Look, he doesn't say if you are able. He's already heard what Jesus can do. His question is not whether God can, it's whether he will. And how many of you in the room are asking that same question? You don't doubt whether God can, but you're wondering whether God will. And Jesus gets on, gets down with him, I imagine, and he looks at him. And every single person that the leper would have done that to would have ran away screaming. But Jesus, look at this, Jesus. It says he moved out his hand and he touched him. He could have said, be clean. He could have said, hey, keep your distance. It's the law. It's literally the law of Moses. Keep your distance. No. No. When Jesus comes, he starts to really shake things up. He touches the man and he says, I will be clean. And look, there's this one outstretched arm of Jesus 
And in this one outstretched arm, he crossed every health code boundary that existed. He crossed every society boundary that existed. He crossed every social, religious, ethical boundary that existed. He crossed all the boundaries. He broke all the rules for the sake of touching this one man. And so it is with you this morning. He is reaching out to you. And he's crossing all the boundaries that you thought would keep him away. And he's not afraid of your mess or your disease or who you are. What you need to understand this morning is that when you come to Jesus, if you will just say, if you will, you can, and respond in faith, he will respond to you by saying, I will. What we see in the scriptures is that Jesus wants to bring healing to both the body and the soul. If you trust in him, he will heal your soul immediately, with no question. And sure, he certainly does heal bodies. It's an amazing thing that he does supernaturally. But sometimes he doesn't, now on this earth. But what he makes is a promise that in heaven, every body will be well and every soul will be well. And Jesus came to heal your body and your soul. One touch from Jesus will change your life. One touch from Jesus. If you're looking over in chapter 2, verse 17, this is important because when he approaches the, le the leper, he breaks all the boundaries. And then you see in the middle of chapter 2 that in verse 17, when Jesus heard it, well, he's eating with what they call tax collectors and sinners. So like prostitutes, people living a type of lifestyle that was looked down upon, the marginalized, the outcasts, the unwanted people in society. Jesus is sitting at their table, and it bothers the religious elite. As a matter of fact, it bothers his own disciples. It bothers everyone that Jesus would be spending time with people like that. And here's what Jesus says. Same would apply to the leper. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You must hear me here that Jesus speaks with all authority and he makes demands and commands on your life. But not only does he speak with authority, but he acts in mercy. Jesus wants to sit at your table today. He already knows everything you bring to it. He knows everything you've done. He knows all the terrible things that you're ashamed of about yourself. And maybe a church or maybe a family member or maybe someone else has ostracized you and put you away because of the way that you live but Jesus wants to sit at your table today. Jesus wants to show you authority and mercy. Would you allow him to come? Because one touch from Jesus will change your life. Here's something you must understand, especially for those of you who are following Jesus and try to pretend to be something you're not yet, that you are closer to God in your mess than in your self-righteousness. What did Jesus say? I came for the sick. Now what do we know? Everybody's sick. So what is he saying? Those who recognize their sickness are the ones who will receive help from a doctor. And so it is much better to be in your mess than in self-righteousness. It is much better to recognize your sin and to say, I am a mess, than to pretend to be better and holier than you are. Now certainly Jesus will not leave you that way. 
He will meet you in your mess, but he will require repentance and that as following him, you must take up your cross and change your lifestyle, whatever it may be. But Jesus is not afraid of where you are and he's happy to come sit at your table. He's happy to reach his hand across and touch you. Jesus the healer, body and soul. Finally, Jesus the savior. Jesus the savior. Chapter two, one through 12, I think is probably at least top five, most important story in Mark. I think it's certainly the linchpin of these three chapters at least. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported he was at home. Many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. He was preaching to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. When they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Once again, nice teacher Jesus, Gandhi Jesus, GQ Jesus, homeboy Jesus doesn't say that. That's a crazy thing to say. Crazy, okay? He said, your sins are forgiven, which is also a wild thing to say to someone who wants you to heal their legs. He's probably like, cool, now I came here for a reason, bro, it wasn't that. He said, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? Right? That's what they're saying. Who does he think he is? Speaking with such authority. That's what they're questioning. He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're right. With that sentence, only God can forgive sins. What they miss is that Jesus is God. And immediately Jesus, get this, perceiving in his spirit that they question within themselves. Woo, look at that. Come on now. You cannot run away from him. They said it in their hearts, and Jesus responds to their question in their hearts with a question out loud. Can you imagine walking around? Being his disciple would have been wonderful and awful at the same time because you're like, you always know what I'm thinking. You're like, get out of my room. I just can't. You're standing right next to me. I just can't. You know, I'm sorry I just thought that. I'm sorry I just thought that. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'd just be saying I'm sorry every three seconds. I don't even know how they made it. And obviously we know now that Jesus still knows your thoughts and he's still present. And sometimes we dismiss the reality that he's just as present as he was with them. Just feels and looks a little different. So he, he answers them. He already knows what you're, what you're thinking. So you might as well just deal with him, okay? He says, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which, if I was them, would already make me be like, okay, you just read my heart. I'm pretty sure I'm going to change my mind. Okay, but they didn't. He said, which is easier, say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. So obviously, it's, his point is, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because it's uh, harder to prove, even though that's obviously harder to do. But it's harder to prove, rise, and say, to, to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. So it's easy to say your sins are forgiven, nobody can tell. But it's hard to say, get up, because everybody's watching, they can tell. But here's his connection, verse 10. This is one of the points that where Jesus claims he is God. If you ever say or hear someone say Jesus never claimed to be God, once again, kick that out the window. They've never read the Bible or they haven't read it really. Chapter 2 right here is a good starting point along with a million other places. Look at this, verse 10. They already said who can forgive sins but God alone. And Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Meaning, I recognize you say only God can forgive sins, and now I'm telling you as the Son of Man, I am God. I am the Messiah. Therefore, I can forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, to prove that he could forgive sins, he says to him, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. 
And he rose and immediately picked up his bed. He went out before them so that everyone was amazed and they glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And as we said last week, this reaction, being amazed, never seen anything like this, being astonished at who God is, is a consistent type of reaction to Jesus. And for us to have anything less than that, to not be amazed and astonished at who he is, at how he reveals himself in his word, at how he answers prayer, what he's done for us on the cross, is to sin against him, that we ought to pursue an awe of God, that we ought to respond like they did to Jesus. But what Jesus is saying here is that I have the, here's the word, authority to forgive sins. And therefore I am God himself. The Son of Man here references the prophecy from Daniel 7. So he's pulling back from the Old Testament to even to help the scribes understand that he is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But once again, the real issue is authority. And what Jesus does now is give us a small picture of heaven to say in the presence of Jesus, where he rules and reigns, there is soul and body wellness. Where Jesus shows up and rules and reigns, there is soul and body wellness. And what Jesus is doing is saving souls on the earth to prepare them for a place called heaven where there is soul and body wellness. As we've been reading about last month, starting in Genesis 1, we were made for the Garden of Eden. We were made for a place of soul and body wellness. We know this inherently. This is why suffering bothers us. No one ever told you that the world should be different. You know within your heart that you were made for something better than this. And so Jesus comes to return us, so to speak, back to the garden. But the only way and the only path to get there is to trust and submit to his authority. Jesus is teacher. Jesus is healer. Jesus is savior. I'm going to give you this final thought as we close today. I'm sure you've all seen uh, the cardboard cutouts at games. Maybe you've uh, watched them on, on TV the last year before crowds were allowed back in. Uh, it was one of these things where they're trying to fill the seats, you know, so it was like, this is lame, sports are better with fans, so we're going to put cardboard cutouts in the seats, and it'll make it feel like there's fans here. Now, everybody that watched the NBA playoffs last year like that, or any NFL game like that, or any soccer game, whatever it may be, uh, quickly realized that having the cardboard cutouts in the stands literally made no difference whatsoever. <laughs> cardboard cutouts make no noise. They don't jump and shout. They don't get excited or sad. They don't do this, like, oh, my gosh. They don't do any of those things. There's no reaction whatsoever from a cardboard cutout. But because the stands were empty, their only option was to fill it with a fake substitute. Now, so it is with many of us in Jesus. We have settled for a cardboard cutout of Jesus because our heart is empty and we're settling for the substitute we can get our hands on. But just like fake fans cannot affect change in the game, so it is that a fake Jesus cannot change your life. Fairy tale Jesus will not change your life. Prophet Jesus will not change your life. Teacher Jesus will not change your life. Gandhi Jesus will not change your life. You need the real thing. So have you settled for a cardboard cutout that's sitting in your heart that makes it feel like maybe something's there, but you know really there's nothing there? And maybe today's the day that you receive Jesus as he is, submitting to his authority, trusting in his life, death, and resurrection for your sins, and following him as the real teacher, healer, and savior of the world. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we honor you. We love you. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to save us. We thank you for everything you've done for us in his name. 
I pray, Lord, Lord, please, 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 clarify for each one of us whether we are following and trusting in the real Jesus. And I pray that you would lead all of us in this room and listening online to submit to your authority, to trust in your life, death, and resurrection, and to follow you, the real thing, from this point on. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.